welcome to the edition podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Henry. Today, we're going to be doing a bit of inside baseball. No, not Apple TV Plus Friday night's offering, but news from social media policy and what it tells us about the, the media landscape and the digital media landscape. Joining me is Chris Sutcliffe. He's a senior reporter covering tech for The Drum and also host on the Media Voices podcast, which you should all listen to, but only after you've listened to all episodes of the edition. <laughs> thank you very Chris, much. Chris, yes, thank you for joining me. Really pleased to have you here. Absolutely now, delighted. Yes, and of course, this conversation has been inspired by the New York Times issuing some new social media guidelines to its newsroom. It's, asked, it's basically asked reporters to spend less time on the platform, which seems entirely sensible on the surface of it as someone who spends far too much time on that platform um i was just have a little want to bring up just briefly before we discuss it some of what executive editor dean bouquet said um he said maintaining a presence on twitter and other social media is now purely optional for times journalists in fact after speaking to dozens of you it's clear to us that there are many reasons you might want to step away and will support anyone who decides to do though to do so um we also need to, later on, he says, we also need to strengthen our commitment to treating information there with a journalistic scepticism that we would any source, story or critic. Um, and then he also went on to announce major new initiative to support journalists who experience online threats or harassment. Um, on the face of it, and I will highlight someone who disagrees with this policy, but on the face of it, I don't see that much wrong with this um there's there's a few things we can unpick there because there is there's a lot that's kind of being bundled in there i mean the harassment Very issue is so. obviously endemic and that's something that i think regardless of where your journalists are you're going to have to deal with that to some extent 100 there is that the twitter like all social platforms is a major driver of harassment and abuse you know as a, a straight white man i get none of that I get occasionally the kind of the blowback, but for people who aren't necessarily straight white men, that must be interminable. So there is an absolutely a case to be on social media less if you do have potential mental health, mental health implications from being abused on there. I think that unfortunately that that has been bound up in this idea that too much time is being spent on social media and also that social media is this kind of undifferentiated whole. So Twitter, for instance, isn't just Twitter, it is a different thing for about 80 different, you know, 80 different things to so many different of its users. So it's a newswire. Mm -hmm. It's a means of communicating between friends. It's a way to actually share your stories. So there's any number of things that you can use Twitter for. And I feel like it's all getting bound together and needs to be separated out. I think that's a very, very good point. Actually, looking at my Twitter feed, it was um, quite interesting over the weekend. Half of it actually this happened kind of last night and this morning as news kept breaking that you kind of half of it was people being cross that Matty Cash had injured uh, Matt Doherty at Spurs and the other half of it was people commenting on this kind of the dramas around the Chancellor Rishi Sunak and mm -hmm. that kind of makes sense if you're me on Twitter who is interested in both football and politics and the media world yeah 100% and you're, you have self-selected exactly Exactly. And your Twitter so the, posts will look different to mine. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a lot more nonsense, I think, on mine because I do like to follow, um, you know, some some some, you know, accounts that, for instance, compare pieces of, you know, architecture to very specific toilets. But that's not, you know, the only reason why I go to Twitter. I do use it as Newswire. Like you said, I use it as a quick uh, at a glance snapshot of what people who I think are experts are talking about. But let's, I mean, for one thing, we can talk about uh, Dean Bouquet's 
um, assertion that people are spending too much time on Twitter. Well, that is just a time management issue. And I think that could be true wherever you're spending your time. So I'm not necessarily sure that that is a valid criticism of Twitter in and of itself. Well, I'd push back on that slightly just because I think, and I know this just frankly from personal experience, that being on Twitter and kind of looking at the conversation around stories after, and, you know, perhaps engaging in that conversation can sometimes feel like you're working and doing journalism and you're not. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what he's talking about. And he did an interview with Neiman Labs, which I'll link to in the show notes, in which he's kind of talking about that, just go and go out and get reporting. And he mm. acknowledges on some beats, going out and getting reporting is mining stuff on social media, including Twitter. But that's not always the case. No. And there's a, there's a good Twitter thread, actually, which I think is linked in that Neiman Lab piece from uh, Megan McArdle, who is from the Washington Post. And she's effectively saying that, yeah, absolutely. Um, it produces no traffic. So there's a very kind of marginal, tangible return if you're actually seeking to get traffic to your stories. But it does encourage journalists to perform for other journalists, which I think is what you're talking about there and actually spending time on it, gauging people's reactions from that very self-selected audience on there. Um, I think that that's absolutely true, although you can hold it in check if you're aware of it. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't be chasing approval through other metrics. So for instance, if you were you know, pushing out a story, it's too easy to sit and watch Chartbeat just or Parsi and watch those numbers tick up. And I think as we'll get into it in a little bit, I think that complete absence, which is what she's advocating from Twitter, is actually a far, far worse, you know, the, the cure is worse than the disease in that sense. I, I would definitely agree with that. I don't think, because I think as much as we can all kind of be self-deprecating and say that we exist in an echo chamber on Twitter, and to a lesser or greater extent, by definition, that is true. Mm-hmm. Um, and is not good for our journalism. Um, by cutting off, I know I've been made aware of other people's views and voices and people I wouldn't, things I would not have been made aware of if I wasn't on Twitter and other social media platforms. Yeah, 100%. There's, there's, been a couple of really good examples of this that have got flagged over the last couple of weeks. So Andre Brock Jr. is a researcher of Black Twitter, for instance, and he's got he's made some really, really good points in publications over the past couple of years that Black Twitter allows Black people to reclaim a lot of the narrative around how Black communities actually engage with tech. So he's basically saying, if you want to engage with us in a legitimate way, you need to do that on Twitter or on these social platforms that we choose to engage with. And there's a really good exhibition at the Turner Contemporary at the moment by Larry Giampong, who is, uh, he's a phenomenal artist. But one of the pieces there is called Blackboard. And that examines how algorithms actually dictate how we talk about this. Now, that's a huge conversation. And we could you know, go into how Meta, how Twitter, how Instagram, how basically any social platform is influencing that. But Larry Giampong is basically saying, absolutely, by choosing to be on these platforms, we are engaging in discourse in a way that we couldn't necessarily have done before the advent of Twitter. And so as we were talking about self-selected audiences, when communities choose to be on yeah, on mass on a platform, that's basically the only legitimate and honest way that you can engage with them. Mm. As you mentioned, if you do want to go and talk to academics in a particular given area, Twitter is as good a source for that as any. Oh, absolutely. There's fantastic ways you can reach out to people as a journalist. As I said, I did warn at the top of the show, this would be somewhat inside baseball. <laughs> and it is because that is true that you've, re, you know, let's be open about it. You and I got in touch because through Twitter, that's why you're on this show. I got a comment. I got, you know, a comment from a request I sent on Twitter for a story that's going out tomorrow morning. So right. yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a valuable resource in that way. And I don't think we should kind of downplay that element of it but i i think that we also have to 
as journalists not pretend sometimes that what we're doing on Twitter is useful and work? No, as my toilet architecture example, I think it's it's one of those where it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because you can publish as much as you want of your personality. You're going to have to share the link to that. Twitter. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to put uh, that in the show notes. No worries. But what I think is is kind of interesting about that is that Twitter is as it as you would use it, any social platform. It's a, an expression of your personality as well. I think that when we talk about not being on social or limiting our time on there, that has potential implications for the trust that the the amount of interaction we have with the public and Dean Bacay to his credit said that he's not expecting people to just remove themselves from the discussion with the public at all you know that's bound up in this whole conversation around removal of public editors all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff but I think if you're not visible on Twitter and open and honest about why you are writing about what you're writing about if you're not showing aspects of your personality that has serious impacts on trust. This leads me really nicely to one of the other bits I wanted to dig into on that which is the issue about institutional brand and personal brand. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a couple of things that when you were talking and quite rightly about, you know, social media, let's, cause we're talking about Twitter, let's use that, but it could be, you know, the things you like and post to Twi- TikTok, the things yeah. you like and share on Instagram, whatever. Um, your holiday picture on Instagram is as much a part of your personality as sharing a picture of your work on Instagram that you're proud of, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that all makes us well-rounded human beings. And I think the flaw, in, if there is one in this approach from the New York Times, it doesn't quite seem to embrace that. Now, you know, they in the interview, they talk about should a sports reporter at the New York Times be passing comment on social media about the White House, for instance, because they're not an expert reporter there. But is a politics reporter at the New York Times perfectly entitled to complain about the the New York Yankees? Yeah. So I I think this is, and both those things might be important to that reporter and part of their personality and part of the reasons why people might wish to follow them on social media. Taylor Lorenz, who's obviously a very well-known journalist now at the Washington Post, formerly of the New York Times, did a whole thread on this kind of, she's written social media policies for newsrooms. She had quite a number of criticisms, but also is, of course, someone who has built up a personal brand as a journalist beyond uh, the institutions that she works for. Um, and and that's been an important part of her getting her work out there. How, how do you think people and institutions can be able to strike that balance, Chris? That's really interesting. And there's, uh, there's a really good piece from uh, John Alsop writing for the Columbia Journalism Review, where he's talking a little bit, bit in part about that. And he's talking about, yeah, it's in a lot of ways, this advocacy to get off of social media is a little bit of snobbery on behalf of people whose brand has already been established or is intrinsically linked to the publication for which they write. But for the upcoming journalists, for the upcoming hacks, for the upcoming, you know, even the kind of the design, the tech teams behind a lot of these newsroom products, how else are you supposed to build a brand? Because the audience now does, they're habituated to interact with you on social media. And, and so I, I'd advocate anybody to go and read that journal. So please, it's really, really good. Mm. He said that people who, fought, oh, he's he's talking here about why um, media Twitter is just as, as viable a way of interacting as anybody. But the kind of, the idea that brand, I mean, that's, it's so big, it could be its own separate discussion, really. But the idea that you are not allowed, effectively, to go out and say, I'm going to strike out on me and I'm going to develop my own thing. You have to be uh, kind of a a part of this big conglomerate that is your parent company. doesn't seem right or fair to me. It also, as I think we'll we'll touch upon, it's harmful in the long run to not 
to, to kind of advocate for this news from nowhere strategy where you have to toe the company line. You are not allowed to explain where you're coming from. Uh, I think that's right. And now, look, there, it's perfectly reasonable that if you're associated with a big institution and brand, they have some say uh, over how you behave in a public facing forum. You know, if you were doing a speaker event as a reporter at a newspaper, it would be quite reasonable for the newspaper to want you to behave in a certain way and advocate for the newspaper in a certain way and mm-hmm. present yourself in a certain way. And that's yeah. quite reasonable. But and, and obviously, because of what we just talked about before, with social media, this is murky, right? Because there's you on, you know, is your social media representing the place you work for Monday to Friday? Or when you're just in the newsroom on a shift? You, do you know, like, it is murky. And obviously, the New York Times have tried to make a decision to try and remove that. But obviously, someone like Dean Bacay has the advantage that I think he's barely tweeted and doesn't need to because he's <laughs> Dean Bacay. Yeah. Um, the New York Times has a huge social media following that it can control through its vast, you know, social media and corporate communications teams. A reporter is just a reporter, and that's you know, Taylor Lorenz has is a great example of someone who has bought and built up a brand in of themselves, um, you know, separate to the places that pay her to write and report. Certainly, mm. I think one of the it feels a little bit disingenuous to me this idea that. The, the reasons Bouquet gave and a reason why a lot of the people who've supported him do support him is, that, you know, they're talking about it from a kind of, oh, you know, we're doing it for your, re- you know, for your health reasons so you can be better to reporters. Whereas I think a lot of it is bound up in the idea that you, they don't want necessarily these individual reporters to become a brand in and of themselves. It may not be that explicit, and I'm sure that they would be more than happy if a couple of people did take off and do their own thing. But for the most part, it seems to me to be limiting the ability of journalists to communicate with the public and to do it on their own terms. Yeah, he, and DPK was keen to point out that about 90% of extra kind of extracurricular activities by New York Times reporters that they were asked to approve have been approved, you know, to mm-hmm. things, TV shows, movies, books, that kind of thing. Um, there's another element to this. I want to, I, I don't really want to make this a discussion just about the New York Times, although that's obviously where the focus comes because of this is who issued this this i was gonna say diktat that's probably (laughs) but it's their memo that's triggered this conversation but the the bit that makes me a bit more supportive of this memo but also quite surprised as to where it's come from is that we know that newspapers and particularly and digital news outlets are driven by conversation and reaction on social media and all the time I was reading through the details of this New York Times memo, I could only think of the words of Barry Weiss in her resignation letter. Now, you can like or loathe Barry Weiss and her work as much as you like, but she put in her infamous, famous, whatever the way you want to put it, a resignation letter from the New York Times. Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. Mm. Now, you could agree with her assessment. She was obviously hinting at a thing around kind of liberalism and council culture and those kind of things in that letter. And you can agree with that or disagree with that. But there is an underlying powerful point here that Twitter conversation can often distort what people actually think is important and should be reported on. Um, And therefore, again, it's maybe not a bad thing that newspaper reporters take a step back from that. I can I can agree with that. I mean, there is certainly an unconscious bias if you are on Twitter to expect that you know what you see on there is indicative or reflective of the wider public. I think there is as long as you're aware of it, that's fine. And I also think it's 
provided that you are on a number of platforms, I think we should be on as many as we can and as accessible as we can be, mm. you know, to the extent of safety, you are sort of inuring yourself against that. It's important to recognize that that is not the only social platform that most people use for instance but well, as long as you're aware of that go fine. on facebook are you i'm not gonna make you go on facebook in fact i feel guilty about it because i feel like i should be but i'm i'm not so there's there's this aspect that i'm not really practicing what my what i preach here because i do advocate that we are as open as we possibly can be and yeah i hate facebook <laughs> so there is a little bit of hypocrisy there uh yeah and it, it just struck me as interesting that there has clearly been a shift you know, during, or perhaps, it's, you know, maybe, is it a shift? Maybe it's a actually continuation of, go, you know, Twitter dictating the conversation at the New York Times or can be being perceived to be. There's, I mean, there's, there's so much that we could yeah. examine there. One of the, one of this, this, this idea that it's now the, the town hall mm. that you can actually sort of, you know, it's, it's a snapshot of a certain subsection of the public, for instance, and it is unduly uh, influential, for instance. So look at Trump's new social platform, Truth Social, that aims to, emulate twitter in so many ways when he was on there that was his primary means of communication you know elon musk is taking it because of its soft power effectively he's investing sure. as much as he is because he, he likes that kind of influence the influence of being on there but at the same time i think it's do we not have a responsibility as journalists and as publications to be beholden to the public in that in that sense we don't necessarily have to let it inform our editorial strategy but we have to be open to that conversation and if that's taking place on twitter if twitter closed down it would take place somewhere else it feels to me that closing down any avenue of communication with the public is not by is not necessarily going to improve anything about a publication's output. Uh, yeah, I, I entirely agree. Uh, I just think it's I think so much of the discourse in the media becomes about Twitter when actually yeah. um, you know people younger than you or I are actually spending more of their time on YouTube or Twitch or TikTok than they ever would on Twitter. Never mind Facebook. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like I said, it's, it's definitely something to bear in mind when it's that then speaks to the need for more diversity and, you know, hiring of younger people and younger experts with the newsrooms who can actually say, look, this is this is the conversation that's taken part on TikTok. This is the culture effectively that is developing around TikTok itself as a platform, just as we have spoken about the culture that you know exists around Twitter. Mm. You know, it is worth reporting on its own right because it does influence real life and real life does influence it in turn. So provided we're, we're kind of aware of all this and we actually do have experts in these platforms, I, I, I really don't see much of a danger in you know treating it as a viable communication platform with public and i also guess that the next level of that self-awareness is actually realizing that a lot of this despite the fact you and i've had a very enjoyable conversation for the best part of 25 <laughs> minutes or so that actually when you see things like photographers and reporters on the ground in places like ukraine doing whatever they can to get their copy back to people um and to get people to know about what's going on there, that actually fussing around with this doesn't make that much difference. Yeah, there's definitely a there's definitely an aspect of um, you know just in as much as we're talking about Twitter distorting how you know important we think kind of stories are and like how how much time we spend on there, the me the amount of time the media spends on thinking about the media is a distraction in and of itself. You know, we talk about Chris, Facebook, for instance. Yeah, Chris, just don't say this. <laughs> no, you are media voices. I've got the addition. <laughs> Understanding the media is very important. It Peace is after me. so super important. Peace Understanding the media is the most important thing, maybe. Thank you. But also, Chris. then you look at things like remember when Facebook got shut down in uh, I think it was um, God, where was it? Was it the Philippines? And there was effectively that's how people interact with the internet mm. there. Now, Facebook and Twitter are very, very different. But as tools of mass communication, 
they are just as vital. And when we talk about it, you know, being um, less important for journalists to be on there, we've got to recognize that we are an important part of that ecosystem and that people do use it for vital communications. It's not just a broadcast channel. Yes. And I would also say, you know, I was kind of comparing the nonsense of most of media Twitter to what we see when reporters go out on the ground in places like Ukraine. But of course, we get information out of places like Ukraine now because of social media. You know, I have watched TikTok live streams of people trapped in basements around Kiev hoping to survive the night. And it's, you know, I would never have been able to see that before. So that that matters in and of itself as well. And it also would be no bad thing for reporters to pick up on that and be aware of that as well. Absolutely. We did a series on the drum that was all about kind of the information war and how we are, you know, we have got so much of our sentiment about the war from posting from Ukrainian people of, of, you know, unbelievable acts of heroism as of resistance and compared and contrasted that to the lack of social media information that's actually coming out of Russia. So regardless of how you think about Twitter itself and how journalists interact with it, we, we can't deny that it is a completely vital and integral part of how we actually consume information about the wider world. And how we're able to share information when in very difficult, bad situations. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's when lines of communication are getting shut down, official lines of communication, you have to turn to these secondary ones. In effect, they are, like I said at the top of the, of the, of the podcast, they are newswires for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess kind of to round out this conversation, the question is what happens next? Because mm. I can't see a way in which this kind of battle between the personal brand and the institutional brand is going to dial down. I don't quite know what side of that will win. Um, if you listen to the previous conversation on the show I had with Brian Morrissey, he kind of thinks it will be a mixing of the two somewhere in the middle with something like Puck, where mm. the writers themselves are big names, but they're also coalesce around a brand. That seems a perfectly logical uh, way to to think about things to me. Um, you know, you cover this day in, day out at the drum. Chris, what, 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 do you, what do you think? Where do you see this going? In terms of personal versus kind of yeah. uh, wider brand? It's it's tricky, isn't it? Because the one thing I can't see at the moment is how, without you know the, those big news brands, it's extremely hard for anybody to make a name for themselves and to d- almost crack open this niche where they can strike out to become a brand in their own right. You can absolutely do it. I'm not saying it's impossible. And you know there are so many experts out there who I you know I'll subscribe to their newsletter, all this kind of stuff because I I have found them through social, for instance. But in terms of actually finding that wider audience. there has to be a more equitable way for news brands to actually allow their, you know, as you would, as a parent would with their child to actually go out, maybe make their own mistakes, maybe develop their own thing. And then they're going to deliver value back to the parent organization. It just needs to be on a slightly more equitable term than, Oh no, you have been engulfed into the NYT news brand and you may not go out and do your own thing. It's it's untenable. You are now the news brand. Yeah, exactly. You're just an extension of us. Yeah, which I think just young people, younger people moving into the industry just don't see like that anymore. That's just not no, how certainly not. people just approach these things anymore. And the um, rise of things like the kind of Patreon, your mm-hmm. you know your individual payment things. So even you mentioned Twitch before. Mm-hmm. So people have become brands in and of their own right on Twitch just because they have used the discovery available through Twitch to create their own thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be games. It's creatives. It's, you know, people who have gone on to launch books, launch entire little media companies off the back of what they were initially doing on Twitch. 
And that's potentially, we're going to have to get a more equitable situation because otherwise we're going to lose out on new blood within the news industry, but also we're not going to have that expertise from... Yeah, I don't think you down. and I, as when you say we, I don't think you and I as consumers of brands will miss out because we'll be able to find these people and benefit yeah. from, from it. But I think news, you know, established news brands might miss out. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's what I meant. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Um, just while we've got a couple of minutes left, tell us a little yeah. bit about, let's change tack a bit. Tell us about the Media Voices podcast. I always really enjoy it, even when I don't agree with you guys. It's always fun to listen <laughs> to the three of you bickering about something. I think you know which member of your team I'm referring to. <laughs> I think so too. Um, but it's always a good listen. It's, you know, pick up on really interesting stories across uh, British, American, you know, media how, mm. how did that kind of come about tell us a bit more about it and also your big report that you do every year yeah so we do i was always a big podcast nut and a couple of years ago when we were all at uh the media briefing which was kind of its own b2b media analysis site that eventually got sold uh to haymarket we negotiated to take over the rights to the podcast and to take over the uh, email distribution newsletter uh, distribution lists and off the back of that we decided ah you know what let's keep this podcast going that me and esther had launched while we were there uh, we're now, God, like five years in, well over 200 episodes. We've spoken to some amazing people. And the the whole purpose is a bit, we're not trying to be the definitive, you know, come here and we'll give you kind of the, the view from, say, Dean Baquet. We're trying to find the interesting people who are doing stuff in the trenches of the media industry. Uh, it's just the three of us, myself, Peter and Esther. And, um, yeah, we launched a newsletter off the back of it. So without meaning to, it sort of became its own little media business. Um, which none of us can really devote 100% of our time to. I'm, I'm by far the kind of the most part-time member of the group. But yeah, it's become its own thing. We launched the Publisher Podcast Awards off the back of it. And it's all because we're trying to practice what we preach when we talk about the media. So if we see that somebody's doing something, say, really interesting at either Reach PLC or uh, we had Associated Media Publishing in uh, South Africa and we go, oh, that's really interesting. Let's try to see if we can do that on a slightly small scale. And for the most part, it seems to be working. And one of those things that we've launched off the back of it, as you mentioned, is a yearly report we do called Media Moments, which we just take a, a look at 10 topics from the media world, whether that's e-commerce, whether that's print, whether that's opportunities in audio. And yeah, effectively, it's it's as good a way as, as we have found to provide a little snapshot of what's going on in the media world over the past year. Yeah, all, it's all really useful stuff. As I say, I thoroughly enjoyed the podcast and you do have some fantastic enlightening guests on there from all sorts of different companies and it's I always find value in listening to the show so I'm really grateful for you uh giving up your time and joining us here on the edition where can people keep up with uh, you personally the personal brand of Chris Sutcliffe <laughs> and uh, of course the media voices and so on so uh probably the best place to find follow me personally is at uh, on Twitter of course at of course. Chris M Sutcliffe uh or via voices.media um, which is Media Voices Pod on Twitter. Otherwise, you can head across to Voices.media, which is effectively our archives, transcripts of all the episodes, where you can sign up to the newsletter, uh, where you can keep abreast of everything that we're doing. Or if you fancy just some nonsense, I'm, like you mentioned, occasionally on Twitch trying to grow my own personal band. So that's uh, that's all available <laughs> on my Twitter as well. Oh, that's fun. What are you doing on Twitch? Go on, tell us. Uh, sometimes it's you know, sometimes it's just kind of filming myself on long walks, just chatting about folklore. Sometimes <laughs> it's me playing a game. Sometimes it's me trying to play the guitar to people. It's it's basically whatever I feel like doing that, that evening. There nice. is no consistent strategy or theme. Nice, nice. I like it. Um, I'm at Char I'm definitely not going to play the guitar on Twitch. <laughs> nobody needs that. But I'm at Charlotte A. Henry on Twitter. 
obviously you can sign up to the edition podcast wherever you listen to your podcast and the edition.substack.com to get your newsletter as well chris thank you so much for joining me really appreciate your input on this conversation and to my lovely listeners i'll see you next week